to the classes being prepared for you. And the rest of us, we can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2 today. Before we begin, though, and before we even pray, I'm going to share with you something that's going to be happening uh, this uh, holiday season. I'm going to try really hard not to make it feel like another sermon, but I've got to try to describe to you what's going on. Uh, so if you, once you get the idea, if you just want to go like, all right, we got it, Tim, uh, go ahead. So one of the things that uh, I have noticed as, as a dad, you know how your kids get excited as the Christmas season arrives, and you get more and more excited, and before you know it, they're counting down the days, um, and... Uh, I'll just share a little. One of one of my children will leave nameless. Um, she actually has countdowns to her countdowns, you know. And so we had countdowns to the beginning of a countdown, and the, the excitement would build. And then all of a sudden, you would come uh, to a church, and in the more of the evangelical church thing, it's like we tripped over the uh, the holidays of our season. Whether it was, you know, all of a sudden you come and boom, it's Christmas, and you're like, what just happened? Or Easter and things like that. And so one of the things that I really do believe. That's important is anticipation, the anticipation, reminding ourselves what we're going to do. And uh, in the in the church world, uh, they would call the season leading up pretty much starting after Thanksgiving, leading up to Christmas, the Advent season. And the word Advent literally means the coming, the coming of. And hopefully, you know, I'm not spoiler alert. It's the coming of Christ. All right. Uh, that we're celebrating at Christmas. And so what we're going to be doing this year and hopefully for Years to come, so we're starting a tradition, which I don't know, you know, it will be tradition next year, but this year it's not tradition. Uh, there's a thing in the, in the church world called an Advent candle, and Advent candles are a group of candles that all circle around one candle, which is the white candle in the middle, which re represents Christ. And each weekend of Advent, you light a different candle reminding us of the build-up to Christmas, and each candle represents something. So obviously week one, we would light the candle that represents hope. And we will be literally doing a sermon on how Christ is the one who is the hope of the world and so forth. And they go hope, love, peace, joy. And then on Christmas Eve, we will light the Christ candle. And then from that will actually be the lighting of our candles of all the other candles that will be lit as we sing our silent night and all of that. And which during um, our church service, though, we are asking we need at least three families and we will take more and then we'll just pull names out of a hat to help read the text of scripture that goes with that candle and then light the candle for us each each uh, Sunday. And so um, to spoil alert, Caleb's family is going to be doing the first one. So hopefully they will do it so phenomenally well that everybody else will understand what they're doing. Uh, and so we're looking for three, even more uh, family units, if you're willing to come up and, and to read and then light the candle for us is something that we can celebrate counting down to Christmas. Um, I know it's the church that we were at before, they would do it, and I would watching my kids start looking and they're counting like they're, you know, there's only a couple more weeks left in the anticipation of our, uh, our joy of Christ coming. And so uh, we're going to be starting that actually the... Caleb, when are we starting that? November 27th, right? All right, the end of gun season, I think, is when we're starting that, that Sunday. So that being said, uh, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll hop into our... So, Daily Father, thank you that you give us things like that to remember. That you give us the joy of the season we're about ready to step into. 
Thank you for all the blessings of life and breath and everything. So, dearly Father, may we, today as we open your word, may we pause and reflect on the truth that your word is boldly proclaiming, and may we listen, believe, and act accordingly. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen. It's interesting the hobbies we do. It's interesting to look at the things we do throughout the week. And so I want to just break this down for you, uh, just a little bit of a mulling over how we act. So if you're a hunter, if you are a hunter, you hunt. And you go, wow, really? Yeah, because hunters hunt. If you're a hunter, you also think about hunting. If you are a hunter, besides hunting and thinking about hunting, you buy hunting equipment. And if you are a hunter, besides just hunting and thinking about hunting and buying hunting equipment, you actually talk about hunting. If you are a fan of sports, you watch sports. You may even try to play that sport until your body says you should stop doing that, and then many of us still try a couple of years later. You also buy sporting equipment, and guess what you do? You talk about sports. And you're going to go, wow, Tim, that's just mind-boggling, you know, information here that most of you are going to go, well, you know, thank you, I'm glad I came to church today. But what we're going to look at, then, is if you are a Christian, you. If you claim to be a Christian, you. And this is what Peter's going to be laying out for us. If you claim to be a Christian, what does Christian living look like? Because as Peter, in his, in his book that he's given us way back in chapter 1, as we've been going through this, he calls this group of people, these believers, exiles, right? And remember, we've walked through exile living and a sojourner. And so if you're an exile, if you're a sojourner, what does that look like as you live? And as Peter is going to start to now build his argument in the later chapters of this book, he's going to start to talk about as you are living and walking your journey in this world, you are going to stand out. We're going to see this in chapter and verse three, sorry, coming up three, four and five. You're going to see there. The world is going to do this, but you're going to do that. And we're going to see the issues that come. Uh, it was interesting this week. Uh, for some reason, I must have been a weak moment. I decided that we were going to do verses one through six. And I told Caleb about halfway through, like, which is not happening. And, and we were trying because I was trying to bring in, in verse three, because verse three is like, look, the world's going to act this way. And you're not going to do that anymore, and they're going to malign you and make fun of you. And I was trying to get to that, but there was too much in verses 1 and 2 that give us the how do you handle verse 3 that we, I, halfway through I said, Caleb, we're just punting and we're going back to 1 and 2. But it's interesting, though, as we look at this verse, and these two verses, and let's read it here. Verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sinning so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now again, hopefully you have, you have learned this, and I'm going to tell you this over and over and over again. When you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, why is it here? Not, or or why is it, what is it there for? And so when you see that word therefore, we know that it's a connector of the thoughts that go on before. Now, also, too, to remind yourself, as you take up your copy of the Word of God, when Peter wrote to the sojourners, he did not write in verse and chapter form. He just wrote the letter. So the verse and chapter form were added much later on. So when we would be sitting in a situation like this and the person talking would say, turn to the book that Peter wrote, and he wouldn't go, all right, like 23 paragraphs in two lines. No, we would just be able to figure this out. Now, uh, it was interesting because 
Uh, one of my uh, professors used to joke with us and say he thinks the guy that was putting chapter and verse down in many of the books must have been riding a galloping horse because it just looked like he was just putting them everywhere. Because there's some there going, what? in the middle of a thought here, what do we have? A chapter break. And you're going, no one writes like that. No one goes, and by the way, I'm connecting these two, but let's start a new chapter. No, they're actually, this is a line. And so sometimes these chapter breaks can be clunky for us as we're studying the Bible. That's why you need to, as you're studying them, look at the therefores and go back to, why are they here? So let's go back to the context of it all. And I'm not going to read all of chapter 3 for you because that would take a little bit of time. But I'm just summarizing. If you look at verse 21 and 22, the summary of this is that Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection of the dead, in verse 22, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. So he's saying because Christ is on his throne reigning, because Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, because of even what Kurt read for us today, because He sits enthroned above the floods of this world. He sits enthroned above all of these things, because God is the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. He is the one that everyone one day will bow their knee to, and He has been given the authority at the right hand of God with all power. Because of that, now verse 4, since Christ suffered in the flesh. Point number one we're going to see is that the Bible also gives not just reasons, but also motivations for obedience. And so what we're going to see here in point number one is Christ's suffering and sin. The relationship between the suffering of Christ and sin. And so we see here in in verse 1 that Christ suffered in the flesh. This suffering in the flesh, when we think of the word suffer, what we first have to do is ask ourselves, well, how is that used? Because we see it again in the verse. Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sinning. And so if we're we're not careful, we can try to take this verse, rip it out of its context of what Peter's talking about, and here are some of the conclusions that people have tried to get, and I would argue wrongfully have gotten this. So Christ suffered, so we must suffer, and if you suffer enough, what can you become? You're no longer sinning. So the way to pure living is you just need to keep suffering. And so before you know, you can build a whole idea of only if I beat my physic- myself physically enough, if I whip myself more enough, and if I continue to keep adding suffering on me, almost living a monkish life, then and then alone am I going to somehow work my way to never sin. And I would go, that's not what this text is saying. But what, if you do, if you rip it out, you can say the way to living a godly life is just go find as much suffering as you can, take off your shoes, walk on glass, and you'll be good to go. And that's not what the text at all is saying. We also have to ask ourselves, notice the verbiage of this. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, not ceased from sinning. So we have to handle what does that mean? What does cease from sin mean? So what is the relationship with Christ suffering and sin? Because if you read something and go, hey, wait a minute. Does that mean if you suffer like Christ, you no longer sin anymore? And most of us would go, well, I sin. So, you know, like, what does this mean? So let's first, before we go any further, let's think of when we, the Bible talks about Christ suffering in the flesh. So let's just go back a couple of verses to 1 Peter 3.18. So we see in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Real quick there, it's clear that that suffering is talking about Jesus' crucifixion. 
Jesus dying here. But even when we talk about Jesus' suffering, I don't just want to say Jesus only suffered on the cross. He had a whole life of suffering. But it was a life of obedience that pointed in the ultimate suffering of Christ on the cross. And we see this. He suffered once for sins. And we see this. He being the righteous one for the unrighteous, that through his death, he might bring us to God. Because what do we know? He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. Also, another verse that I think is even more clearly understanding what the suffering. Go to uh, 1 Peter 2.24. Speaking of Jesus here, in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we have been made whole. So what we see here is that Christ suffered that we might also live in righteousness that He has called us to. Another way of putting it here, we, those of us who are followers of Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness because of the suffering of Christ. So another way of thinking of this is what Peter is reminding us here. This suffering in the flesh has ceased from sin. And what he's saying here, the same way Christ suffered in the flesh, just as Christ suffered, those who are following Christ are now resolved to live a righteous life. They have now been made new by the Holy Spirit. Because we talk about those who have, been, who have died with Christ have been made alive. If you're a follower of Christ, you, have been, you died with Him on the cross and He rose you back to life again. Figuratively, we know that. We, this is what the baptism is all about. When we go under the water and be brought above the water, we understand that the symbolizing of us being dead with Christ and, and rised again to Him all brought about by His justifying work on the cross, that now our resolve of a follower of Christ, our relationship with sin is totally different. Because Christ suffered and we are partakers of His suffering through His obedient life on our behalf. He was our substitute. Because of Christ's substitute on our behalf, what we have now is a totally different life with sin. At once, sin was our master. We had one choice on the shelf and one choice alone was which sin we're going to pick today. Jesus told his followers this all the time. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other. This idea of riding the fence does not work in the Christian world. Jesus is an all or nothing call. So sin no longer is my master. I am dead to sin. Let's think about that for a moment. You are dead to sin. My relationship with sin is one that it no longer has the power over me that it once was. Because of Christ conquering it on the cross, sin is no longer my master. That means now that why that is, is because what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus came to meet with him, you are going to be born again. You will have a new heart, a new life that you're going to have. Your old desires have been taken away and your new desires, your new heart has been given in you. Jeremiah writes about this, the idea of the stony heart being taken out and the heart of flesh being placed in our lives. But we still have to deal with this idea of this longing, this lingering sin, I mean. Um, Alistair Begg, in one of his sermons talking about this, said, reminded us that sin no longer reigns in our lives, but yet it can still remain. And so this battle of the sin of the sin that rem remains in our lives, this battle of the, the, no longer is it power over us, but yet because we live in the flesh still here on earth, we still have this wrestle with sin in our lives. So what are we to do? How are we to handle this? 
Colossians reminds us of this. If you could turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. I want to look at verse 3 first. Colossians 3, 3. Remember this idea of suffering? This idea of Christ and His death? Here's how Paul writes about it. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is not saying he's not writing to a group of people who are dead. All right? They're alive, but what have they done? Because they're followers of God, they are now dead to the sin. And so that's why he says in verse 2, go back to verse 2, Therefore set your minds on things that are above, not on the earth, because you are dead to those things. They no longer have the power over them. The sheer fact that you're doing them is not because they have power over them, literally because you are choosing to do them. It is not because you cannot say no to sin anymore. It's because you are choosing to live in sin there. And this is what we see here as Peter's going to go continue on. This is what he says. Notice this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, and he says, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Peter is telling them to literally to arm themselves. Interesting, he's using the term of armor. Arm yourselves. Put on the armor of this type of thinking. And it's interesting, even when you take a a quick view of the armor of God, what is the armor of God that we put on our heads? The helmet of salvation. Why? Because salvation reminds us that we are no longer our old self, we are new, our new way of thinking. And it's interesting, he uses the term arm yourself. He doesn't say arm yourself with this type of gun. He doesn't say arm yourself with this type of weapon. He uses the term arm yourself with a way of thinking. And so what I'd like to do here, I'm going to work through something that I have been working through my whole life, and please do not ask me the fine-tuning parts of this because I'm still wrestling through this phrase. And so when I, uh, one of the things I used to do at, a, at the Christian school I taught at, I was in maintenance, and when you're in maintenance, you're up and down the hallways quite a bit, and there was a sign, there was actually a picture frame in the hallway that the kids would walk by all the time, and all I would do is straighten it up, pick it up off the ground, straighten it up. And in, on this picture frame, and there was no one who was given... The, this quote too, so I have no idea who, who wrote this or who said it. Soon I'm just going to take credit for it because, you know, I think I've said it enough that it's mine. But there's, there's a way of thinking, and it went like this. You always do what you believe was at the top. You always do what you believe, and that was just, okay. And then it had these lines, and it had belief, and you see it in your notes there. It had beliefs impacts your values, and what you value impacts what you think, and what you think turns into actions. And it had this line, what your beliefs impact your values, what you think about impacts your actions, and so you always do what you believe was the, that was there. And I've been wrestling through this for quite some time, because when you think of the idea of a belief, your beliefs are your convictions, what holds you. What you truly are going to say, no matter what happens, this is what I believe, and I believe it no matter what. No matter what the world is going to try to say at me, this is what I hold to. I cling to this, and I'm willing to die for it. No matter what pressure comes about me, even if it means I have to leave family or whatever, this is what I hold. This is what I believe. You're not going to change that in my life. And so I'm even wrestling through, so what are my convictions? All right? like, what am I actually willing to not just lose money financially about, and all of these other things. That's its own wrestle. Because then I start to ask myself, what am I valuing? And am I valuing what I say I believe? How does my belief start to shape my values? Because what my values are going to do is what I start to value is what I start to think about. 
and it starts to shape what I'm thinking about. And all of a sudden, as my beliefs impact my values and my thinking, this is going to be played out in my actions. So this morning, I was sitting here trying to wrestle through this example, and I, I'm just going to give you how it plays out. So in about two weeks from now, I'm going to get up on a Saturday morning way too early when it's really, really cold out and go sit in a stand hoping to shoot a deer to get meat, all right? And I'm going to say, why? Well, because that's what I've been thinking about for this last couple of months here, all right? And I saw a buck go running across the road the other day, and I'm like, why don't you run closer to where I'm hunting, all right? And so that's my thoughts, all right? So I'm starting to say, well, what do I value that's changing the way I think because my actions are going to be here that most people are going to go, why are you getting up that early? Just stay in bed, right? And just hit one with your car later in the year. And so all of these things that are coming, I'm going to go, so what is it that I believe that's impacting why I'm getting up to do this? And what is it that I'm ultimately doing? And I'm really still wrestling and I don't have the reason for that yet, but it's, I know that it's happening here. That is starting to go, why do I value that that much that is starting to shape my beliefs? And so I would argue with you, all of you guys, is we need to wrestle through this pattern in your own lives and just start to ask yourselves, all right, where am I spending my time, my energy, and all of these other things that I'm going, and how does that actually shape up with what I say I actually believe? Because notice this. Peter says there's a way of thinking that you need to arm yourselves with. You need to be able to grapple because the world is going to be coming at you because guess what we see in verse 3? The world's going to come at you, but you need to arm yourself with a way of thinking that helps you respond by not doing these actions that are over here, and that way of thinking is your belief system that you don't, you don't give into no matter what because that's who you are. So if you call yourselves an exile, guess what that's going to play out in? Your actions over here. Point number two here, you're going to see arm yourselves with this way of thinking. When you arm yourself with a way of thinking, I was wrestling through this because if you just, by just taking a, an easy look at our world around us, there is a way of thinking that the world is trying to pound into us. You need to think this way about this issue. You need to think this way about that issue. And it's all a battle of the thought and the mind, which is going to be played out very quickly by when the masses on Tuesday go to put a little check in a box or not, has been impacted by their way of thinking and what they value, what they believe is going to be expressed and put out in front of us. It was interesting. came across this a couple of weeks ago. On April 3rd, 1965, across the airways of our country, a man named Paul read an article that he had written about what he would do if he was the devil in America. Here's what he said. I would begin the campaign of whispers. I would whisper the wisdom of the serpent. I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper, the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would whisper that bad is good, and what is good then is popular. In the, years of, in the ears of the young married, I would whisper that work is not fulfilling and that cocktail parties are good for you. 
I would caution them not to be extreme in religion, in patriotism, or in moral conduct. And to the old, I would teach them to pray. I would teach them to say after me, Our Father, which art in Washington. And then he went on and on and on, but that's all we need for that. And he ended it with, this is Paul Harvey, good day. You would have thought that he penned that in 2022. But here's what we forgot. Anyone who does a quick study of our world and the American world that we live in right now knows that after World War II, you literally had the Allies and coming in, and all of a sudden you had the Russian group coming into Berlin, and they run into each other, and they go, now what are we going to do? And I'm summarizing here really quick. And uh, they stopped firing at one another, and we went into this war of ideas. And so it didn't take long in the 1950s and 60s. You had the economic system of the United States being put against the economic system of the Russian world, whose economy is going to be stronger. The Russian communist worldview was more of an atheistic worldview. The American view still had a Judeo-Christian hangover still left in it. And before you know it, it became a battle of ideas. Who was going to win the day? And the battle of ideas went back and forth on so forth and so on, and, they, and we thought this, and we didn't realize this, and before you know it, we started to realize that at the root of mankind, sin always has its day, and before you know it, the battle for the Cold War was not won or lost by an arms race. It was lost because we allowed generation after generation after generation to start thinking in a certain way. And we have the country we have today because we have allowed ourselves to start thinking a certain way. This is why Peter understands this. Peter tells them to arm themselves with a way of thinking. Even go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 16. Here's what he says. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you to be holy, be holy. And he's saying to us now, he's saying just like we saw like that, that, in, that idea that Paul Harvey wrote was the idea of as long as we can just get people thinking a certain way before you know it, what do we have? We have an outcome of destruction. And what Peter is saying, if you do not understand your, your interaction with sin, that sin no longer has power over you. You do not need to live as if you cannot do anything about this. What you are to do is to set your mind for action. Look fully in the grace of Jesus Christ and run to Him. Because a true believer, a believer's values have been drastically and dramatically changed. If you are a follower of God, you are a living, moving, breathing temple of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul will go on later to say, you are not your own, you have been bought with a price, and because you are not your own, you have been bought with a price, your relationship with sin is drastically different. That is why, because you have been bought with a price, you do what? Glorify God. So, you are armed for battle, and how are you armed for battle? You are armed for battle by understanding your relationship with Almighty God because He is sovereign over the heavens and the earth because He has died on the cross. We now are dead to sin, and not just dead to sin, what are we? Alive to Christ. 
And so a relationship with sin is not one as a master, but is one as that we now have power over it through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why the believer can truly pursue with all of his heart the greater good. This is where when, a, when the Holy Spirit comes in and starts changing our heart and our minds, it starts to be seen then in actions. But what can happen is we like to start to actions and somehow work our way back instead of realizing that true actions, true actions are found by what we actually believe. Because if you're not careful, anyone can go along with the flow. But it's when the world tries to say, why are you not doing this? Because let's look at verse 3 here. We're, not gonna, we're gonna talk a whole lot more about it, but the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. All right, so what do we see here? What is the relationship that they, you used to do this, but now you don't do this? And the reason why you don't do this is because now your relationship with sin, you are dead to that. These pleasures do no longer have power over you, so you don't join in with these people. And what happens? You get mocked and maligned. All right, well, we'll walk through all of that next week. But how do we not do that? Notice what it says in verse 2. We have to understand what the will of God is. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Because Christ suffered on the cross and what he accomplished on the cross, and for those who have suffered in the flesh, meaning those who are following after God, those here as well, this idea of suffering the flesh also carries with it those who take up their cross daily and follow after Him. As you live the rest of the time in the flesh, meaning you're alive here on earth, what do we are no longer? We're no longer living for human passions, but for the will of God. What is the will of God? The will of God is to obey the Word. Obey the Word of God. While you live in the flesh, you're living here on earth, you will have human desires. Now, I want to make sure we're clear on this. Human desires are not evil. But what he's talking about in here are human desires that they're at their root are sinful. So, like, I'll give you an example. Humans can have desires, right? That's not necessarily just because you desire, like, I'm hungry, all right? That's a desire, all right? That's not evil. What he's talking about, human desires, you're talking about passions here that at their root are evil passions, what we need to do is notice this. It's interesting. Human passions are no longer living for, but for the will of God. All right, so how do we go from human passions, because that sounds kind of passionate, right? Like there's energy behind that word. These are, we, we see entertainment in it, that word passions and all these other things. Um, we would, I would put it in the same line of amusement, Okay, one of the fun things I love to do when my kids roll their eyes, if we go to amusement park, I love to continually go, this is very amusing. All right, because what is the park for? Your amusement, right? And so they have songs and glitter and all this kind of other stuff going on. And if you really think about it, especially the Ferris wheel, not the, what's the um, one with the horses that go up and down, you go in a circle and you end what is it, Caris, the Ferris wheel? Carousel. Carousel. There's a Ferris wheel. And then there's a carousel. Yes, the carousel literally is just lights and jingles, little, little like tinkly sounds that you just go round and round in a circle. And some of the horses move up and down, some of them don't. And at the end, you get off and go, well, that was amusing, right? And then you go wait two hours in a line for 
something else to amuse you. And you literally feel like you're going, am I living in Vanity Fair here? That I spent how much money to be amused? And you go, wow, that's, we sold myself so short for these things. Nothing against amusement parks, but I'll let you find the amusement that is there. But let's think about that for a moment. The things of this world we can be so caught up with, and they are not satisfying. Because here's the crazy part. Pick anything in this world that they have to offer. You take it, and immediately, because we live in a sinful world, it'll fall apart or decay, right? It doesn't matter. We're picking on, we picked on hunting and sport and sports. So you go out and you shoot a deer. Guess what you're going to, the pressure is for next year? To shoot another one, and the goal is to find a bigger one, right? And then we all come in and we evaluate who shot the biggest deer, this or whatever. If you have a sports team, you win, and that's exciting for that moment, but guess what's going to happen next year? No one really cares. And to tell you how no one really cares is unless you're a fan of that sport, no one even remembers your name, but at that time you thought it was so big and so exciting, and before you know it, who? You know, I, for the younger generation, who's Bart Starr? I mean, like, I've heard of all sorts of things, but really, who's that guy? But everybody else, he's the greatest guy, all, you know, and before you know it, you move on. Well, so when we think of this, arm yourself with a way of thinking is because there are comparison battles going on in the Christian's life all the time. Do I follow the will of God or my own human passions? What is going on here? And only a believer that has been captivated by the Word of God, that have set their mind on things above, only then and then alone can that person see in a true comparison battle that what the world is calling out for will not satisfy. No matter how deeply I drink. But let's be honest, the temptation is real. The temptation in front of us is real all the time because we live in a day and age where entertainment And all of the things are coming at us so quick. It's coming at us so fast that we don't spend time pausing and saying, wait a minute, why am I doing this? Why am I sitting here? What about what I believe is impacting my actions? Why am I doing this? Or we just get so caught up because everybody else is doing it. Everybody else says this. Everybody else says that. And before you know, we are so swept away. But what I'd really love for you to do is to pause as I would walk up and down that hallway to pause and be thinking, how are my beliefs impacting my values? And how do what I value impact my thoughts? And how do what I think about actually impact my actions? Because at the end of the day, as this whoever said it said it, you always do what you believe. Because if you really didn't believe it, you wouldn't be what? Doing it. That's why people die for the faith. Because what are they saying? I'm not going to do what you say you're doing because my belief is keeping me this way. And even if you burn everything I have, well, that's not really my value, right? For me to live as Christ and to die, gain, right? And we live that way, but, but it is hard living in a day and age where so much trash is so easily given to us as entertainment So many things are sold to us as a bill of goods, and we don't start thinking critically because here's what Paul is saying. Arm yourself, Peter's saying this, arm yourself with this way of thinking because verse 3 is coming. Because we read that, hey, you used to do this, but now you don't. But if you haven't lived that, if you've lived that, where people are mocking you for a new way of living, When all of a sudden you used to do this, but now you're not, 
you all of a sudden start to realize, am I actually, do I actually believe this or do I not? Because getting mocked for the things of God, getting mocked for doing the will of God and not following human passions is real and it will happen because these group of people, what we're going to see next week is that they're surprised when you didn't go along with it. Like, what happened, man? You used to do this, but now you don't. You know, and then the mocking comes, the maligning comes. But again, we arm ourselves with this way of thinking, so when the battle comes, we are ready to face the battle. So, what do we do? We'll pick on hunting again, then, with this illustration. If you are getting yourself ready for hunting, usually you try to have to do something with the scent that is on your clothes from last year, so you put them outside and hope for the best, right? You wash them and go, maybe the deer won't smell me. Then you take out your gun and you start practicing, all right, and you shoot and things like that, but there's, let's be honest, there's no way to really do it. When that deer comes by and your heart's pounding 100 miles an hour, you know, it, you're, the, you, you may miss. You probably will. And then you'll use excuses after that, right? And you get yourself ready. You try to practice. You try to put yourself in those spots. But let's be honest. If any of you are like me at all, how many times do we get up in the morning and we don't go, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God? And we go, I got this. And we go off our merry way not realizing that we need to arm ourselves with a way of thinking. It would be ridiculous to think that I'm going to take my, my orange jacket that I just ate a Burger King with and a, and a gun that I've never sighted in, I'm going to go out and hunt. All right, you'd go, you're going to be sitting out there, but nothing's going to come your way, right? And even if it does, good luck hitting it. Many of us live our Christian walks that way, where we don't realize that there is a battle every single day for the heart and mind of you, and not only you, but your children and the generations that come after that and after that and after that. So are we arming ourselves with a way of thinking that is God-honoring? Because what Peter says is you arm yourself by this way of thinking, that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. So you are no longer controlled by human passions, but you are longing to know and live the will of God. I always like to remind people the answers in Christianity are simple. But doing what you know to do is the hard part. But we are not left alone. God has given us his Holy Spirit to empower us. So my prayer for us is this. That each day we would get up, be renewed by the word of God, continually asking ourselves, what do I truly believe? How has that impacted my values? How does it impact the way I think? And then what am I doing? Take a moment and pause and go, why am I doing this? Why am I running to this? Because it starts to impact how you think and how you live. Because what we're about ready to do is we're going to turn to the communion table, which is going to be an action that we're going to do. But why are we doing this action? The answer is pretty simple. Because God said, do this. <laughs> and so we believe what the Bible has said. Guess what we do? We do what he told us to do. And we do this, and we have to ask ourselves, of, what is this telling me about who God is? And this is what, uh, by God's grace, Rob will lead us through as we spend time reflecting on these things. So let's pray.
Dear Holy Father, thank you that it is by your grace and your grace alone that we stand. As we think about what Peter wrote here, help us, guide us, give us the strength we need to understand the beauty of the communion table, but also to understand our relationship with sin and even what the table reminds us of. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen. If you could stand with us as we sing.